All right, we went out with the Jefferson Starships. We built this city, which was kind of apropos for Gavin Newsom, I think. But it's also apropos for the obituary, which we must sadly note today, for Marty Balin. Back in the 1960s, Marty Balin was a San Francisco folk singer, but he got inspired by the Beatles and the other British invasion rock bands, and he went electric. But Balin later noted that when I mentioned that notion in clubs that I played, the owners would say, we wouldn't have you play here. This is a folk club. So he took matters into his own hands. He founded a club and a band. Both would be integral to the rise of hippie culture in 1967's Summer of Love. The band was the Jefferson Airplane, the first U.S. psychedelic rock group to achieve mainstream success with hits like Volunteers, White Rabbit, and Somebody to Love. The club was The Matrix, which would host early performances by The Grateful Dead, Santana, and the Janis Joplin-fronted Big Brother and The Holding Company. Marty, said former airplane manager Bill Thompson, was the one who started the San Francisco scene. They then left the group in 1971, fed up with his bandmate's cocaine habit, according to Rollingstone.com, noting the chemicals made people crazy and very selfish. Balin said it just wasn't any fun to be around. He did reunite with several airplane alumni as part of the Jefferson Starship in 1974. He wrote and sang their biggest hit, 1975's Miracles, which reached number three in the Billboard charts. Weary of touring, Balin quit the band in 1978 to go solo. He occasionally joined airplane and starship reunion projects, but preferred playing low-key club sets with his folk trio. He said in 2016, there aren't any egos. We just get to the music, man. Mr. McMillan adds that he was also punched by Hell's Angel at Altamont, which I did not know. I do want to cite before we leave Marty Balin, and there's so much you can say about him. We would, we would refer you to some of the writings of David Talbot who has uh, chronicled a lot of the San Francisco scene in his well-regarded book, Season of the Witch. We have happily had David Talbot on this program on three occasions. He had a bit of a health setback uh, earlier this year, but we're, we're, we're pleased to be able to report that he is, he's recovering nicely. He's certainly back on the word processor, raising hell as, as, he, as he does so well. We quoted Marty Bennett on this program many years ago, and... <laughs> It would be wrong not to, not to dredge up that quote again because it's so good. The scene was the early 70s. The popular musician, and I guess you could add movie star, John Denver, came forward to announce solemnly to, to, to national and international headlines that he had smoked marijuana. And although it's hard to imagine now, this caused quite a stir back in the day and prompted Marty Balin to hold a press conference. At which point he came forward to say, I have to admit, I've smoked it myself. It is John Denver's courage in coming forward to admit to this that allows me to also come forward and make the same admission or words to that effect. I remember back in college, my roommate reading the quote from Balin and both of us laughing rather uproariously. In other musical news, I would note that while driving back from Southern California last month, I uh, was really enjoying California's beautiful scenery and had some great tunes playing in the car. In this case, it was Steely Dan's Alive in America, a wonderful live album if you've never heard it. Among the many songs that I liked was Steely Dan's Kid Charlemagne. When I got home, I pulled up Donald Fagan's hip lyrics and took a look and discovered, to my surprise... 
that the song was written about Owsley Stanley, the manufacturer of high-quality LSD, and was also a legendary sound technician for the Grateful Dead, which I thought was some pretty curious stuff. So we'll return to that, I think, at the end of the program. Although I do want to note at this point in time that I was surprised to discover that comedian Chevy Chase, while at Bard College, played the drums for Walter Becker and Donald Fagan in a band they had in college. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending upon how you look at it, Chevy gave up the drum set and became a comedian. Mr. Millen points out this may be good news for drumming, but bad news for comedy. (laughs) I'm not saying I disagree. But you may have noticed that Chevy Chase is pouting currently. He's angry that he can't find work in Hollywood and complains that, well, they're really more about George Clooney's and people of that age. And although I look pretty good for 74, I don't know why I couldn't do a Chevy Chase picture, but it just doesn't happen. In a Washington Post article, it was admitted that part of the reason was that because of his reputation for having a hot temper and outsized ego. You know, we may have given Chevy Chase more airtime than he deserves on Radio Parallax. We were talking about Caddyshack for some reason uh, a while back, I think in conjunction with uh, the late, great Doug Kenny. To note that there's only one scene in the movie where, where Bill Murray and Chevy Chase are actually literally physically in the scene together because Bill Murray hates his guts. Apparently, after Chevy left the show and came back and was lording around backstage, <laughs> Murray punched him right before they raised the curtain. Mr. Mullen would like to add, well, perhaps not hard enough. Anyway... Chevy's been complaining to Lorne Michaels about how they ought to let him host again. Michaels has said, no, you're too old, Chevy. For his part, Chevy dismisses the current SNL as the worst effing humor in the world. Gee, I wonder why they don't invite him back as a host. Although, I'm not sure he's that far off the mark when it comes to what's passing for humor down there at Saturday Night Live. But again, that's just my opinion. We're talking about water. Water issues at the end of the last segment, something we're very fond of doing. And we want to give an attaboy to the Sacramento News and Review for their piece last month on uh, a guy we've spoken with many times, Dan Bacher. In fact, I hope we'll have Dan on in the future. The, the headline of the, uh, the article about him was The Most Dangerous Man in the Delta, which kind of reminds me of the headline they had about us when we were featured in that fine newspaper. I was described as possibly the most dangerous man in radio. Now, that was a wonderful, wonderful piece. I am, I'm grateful for it. I want to thank Rachel LeBrock for her interest. Uh, and I guess nothing can be done about the photograph of me that was on the cover where I was a dead ringer for Al Capone. But uh, we have to just love the way Dan Bacher's gone after Jerry Brown. Jerry Brown would like to leave a, uh, the image that he's been wonderful for the environment. And, you know, he could have been worse. There's plenty of worse people out there, but... He doesn't quite have the halo that he he would like us to think that he does. At least uh, that's what Dan Bacher would say. The SNL notes that he's been writing about the the efforts to build a peripheral canal in Project, which is what this Twin Tunnels is, ever since uh, Brown's failed 1982 attempt to move more Delta water to Southern California cities and agribusiness. Dan said, California is the nation's green leader and Jerry Brown is the ultimate climate leader. Dan posted that on Facebook when the American Lung Association (laughs) released its latest report rating our air quality. He added, that's why four out of five urban areas with the most polluted air in the nation are in California, the nation's third biggest oil producer. Another point in the article by Scott Thomas Anderson (laughs) notes that Bacher posted an an archival photo of Brown walking with a smile next to cult leader and mass murderer Jim Jones, adding the one-word caption, Memories. 
Yeah, Dan Bogger's a pistol. We need to get him back on. Uh, no, Mr. Merlin, he, he was not on Bonanza. I think you're, you're thinking of Dan Blocker. Okay, sorry. Okay. There's been a lot of immigrant bashing uh, that's taken place uh, since Donald Trump became the president. So I thought it was sort of funny to look at a clipping I made out of a, I don't know, a Newsweek from like 2007 that was a, a summary of some great Hollywood movie directors, noting that they had at least two things in common. They all won Best Director Oscars, or two or three of them once they got here, and they all immigrated to the United States from elsewhere. For example, Frank Capra, three-time Oscar winner, came here from Italy. William Wyler, three-time Oscar winner, came here from Germany. Michael Curtis, who produced Casablanca from Hungary. Billy Wilder, two-time winner from Austria. Fred Zinnemann, also from Austria, two-time winner. John Schlesinger from England gave us Midnight Cowboy. Milos Forman of Czechoslovakia gave us One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus. Elia Kazan from Turkey, Gentleman's Agreement, and On the Waterfront. Anyway, we're searching for a Roman Polanski joke right now feverishly. Did he win the award for Chinatown? He should have. And speaking of Roman Polanski, he apparently is working on a movie based on the Dreyfus case. Back in 1935, or is it 1936, the movie The Life of Emil Zola, starring Paul Muni, I think won Best Picture. We have told that sad story of what happened to Dreyfus uh, on this program at, at some length in the past, but I think it would be very interesting to see a movie made about it, especially one made by Roman Polanski. We'll continue to see, uh, see what evolves there. Uh, we do want to note that there are perhaps some legitimate issues about uh, about immigration in this country. Well, maybe not immigration per se, but the fact that it's been the long-standing policy and law in the United States to note that anyone born here is an American citizen. I don't know, back in the 1780s, when this, I guess, was first adopted, whether they would ever have imagined that people would be flying over here from China while pregnant to get put up in a hotel and be pampered long enough to deliver your baby and then go back to China with your newly minted American citizen. And yes, that is happening. In fact, it's happening here in the U.S., and it's happening in Canada. Notes the week. Canada's opposition conservative party has amended its platform to include a pledge to end birthright citizenship. Canadians should fight for our own babies, lawmaker Alice Wong said at the party's annual convention, adding that children born to non-Canadian parents should not automatically be granted citizenship. Andrew Griffith, a former top immigration official, said so-called passport babies were a problem in some Canadian cities and that birth tourism should be stopped. But he added that ending birthright citizenship in general would be using a hammer to squash a fly. According to Canada's National Statistics Agency, just 313 babies were born to non-Canadian mothers in 2016 in all of Canada. But a single hospital near Vancouver said it recorded 383 births to non-resident mothers, mostly Chinese, in 2016-2017. And another item also discovered in our archives, something we filed away back in 2007 in conjunction with this radio program, was a piece in the Washington Post, which in rereading today has me flabbergasted. We've been noting a lot of anniversaries of late. Ten years 
past the 2008 financial meltdown that rocked this nation. 50 years since 1968 when so many earth-shaking things took place and 100 years from the end of World War I. And also, unfortunately, for the worldwide Spanish flu epidemic, which is estimated to have killed more people than both world wars combined. But anyway, we think of the great financial crisis as taking place in 2008. As the election was nearing, Obama and, uh, and McCain were sparring, and I had a picture in my refrigerator of <laughs> McCain looking angry, Obama looking concerned, as I sat around a table with George W. Bush, who looked utterly confused. So imagine my surprise when I find this article, which we set aside, dated December 2007. Noted, Mr. Perlstein, in December of 2007. We're only at the beginning of the financial world coming to its senses after the bursting of the biggest credit bubble the world has seen. People forget the fact that this credit issue was starting to ramp up in 07 before the proverbial you-know-what hit the fan. The article says everyone seems to acknowledge now that there will be lots of mortgage foreclosures and that housing prices will fall nationally for the first time since the Great Depression. Some lenders and hedge funds have failed, while some banks have taken painful write-offs and fired executives. There's even a growing recognition that a recession is over the horizon. This is written eight months before, you know, it got really bad. Said Stephen Perlstein, but let me assure you, you ain't seen nothing yet. He added, what's important to understand is that contrary to what you heard from President Bush, this isn't just a mortgage or housing crisis. The financial giants that organized, packaged, raised, and insured all those subprime mortgages were the same ones run by the same executives with the same fee incentives using the same financial technologies and risk management systems who originated, packaged, rated, and insured home equity loans, commercial real estate loans, credit card loans, and loans to finance corporate buyouts. He added, it is highly unlikely that these organizations did a significantly better job with those other lines of business than they did with mortgages. But the extent of those misjudgments will be revealed only once the economy has slowed, as it surely will. He went on, let us begin with the mortgage-backed CDO, collateralized debt obligation. By now, this is in December of 07, by now, almost everyone knows that most mortgages are no longer held by banks until they are paid off. They are packaged with other mortgages and sold to investors like a bond. He went on. In the simple version, each investor owned a small percentage of the entire package and some got the same yield as all other investors. Then someone figured out that you could do a bigger business by selling them off in tranches, corresponding to different levels of credit risk. Under this arrangement, if any of the mortgages in the pool defaulted, the riskiest tranche would absorb all the losses until its entire investment was wiped out, followed by the next, the next riskiest tranche, and the next. With these tranches, mortgage debt could be divided among classes of investors. The riskiest, those with the lowest credit ratings, were sold to hedge funds and junk bond funds whose investors wanted higher yields that went with the higher risk. The safest ones, offering lower yields, and treasury-like AAA ratings were snapped up by risk-averse pension funds and money market funds. The least sought-after tranches were those in the middle, the mezzanine tranches, which offered middling yields for supposedly moderate risks. Stick with me now, says Pearlstein, because this is where it gets interesting. 
For it is at this point the banks got the bright idea of buying up a bunch of mezzanine tranches from various pools, then using fancy computer models they convinced themselves and the rating agencies that by repeating the same tranching process, they could use these mezzanine-rated assets to create a new set of securities, some of them junk, some mezzanine, but the bulk of them with the AAA ratings more investors desired. It was a marvelous piece of financial alchemy, one that made Wall Street bankers and the rating agencies billions of dollars in fees. He goes on, what we all know now, of course, is that investment banks and rating agencies underestimated the risk that mortgage defaults would rise so dramatically and that even AAA investments could lose their value. One analysis, again, this is, this is written in December of 07. One analysis by Idis's Capital, a fund specializing in collateralized debt obligations, estimates that of the CDOs issued during the peak years, 06 and 07, investors in all but the AAA tranches will lose all their money. And even those will suffer losses of 6 to 31%. Anyway, reading ahead, he says, if this all sounds like a financial house of cards, that's because it is. It's about to become crashing down with serious consequences, not only for banks and investors, but for the economy as a whole. He closed by saying, this may not be 1929, but it's a good bet that it's way more serious than the junk bond crisis of 89, the SNL crisis of 1990, or the bursting of the tech bubble in 2001. 11 years later, after a decade of what has been called the Great Recession, it looks like Perlstein was right on the money describing what was about to happen before it happened. What I intend to do is track down Mr. Stephen Perlstein to see what he knows about what's likely to happen now. We might all want to do that, my dear listener. And also from the archives, I have from The Economist, dated December 20th, 2008, an article about the Battle of Smoot-Hawley. It was a cautionary tale about how a protectionist measure opposed by all right-thinking people was nevertheless passed and did a great amount of harm. This is especially relevant in an era where Donald Trump is initiating a trade war with the rest of the world, restricting trade between us and everybody else. This is probably not a good idea. And although I want to quote extensively from this piece, we're running a little short on time today, so I'm going to defer that, I think, to next week's program where we talk a little bit more about what's going on economically in the world. Not that we're economists here, but, you know, I think anybody can see something's not right. Oh, and by the way, I just put my hands on that uh, poll data by the Supreme Court. The exact wording of this poll done by C-SPAN slash PSB was that 28% of voters believe that the Supreme Court acts in a serious and constitutionally sound manner. Now, the reason I'm cutting short on that Battle of Smoot-Hawley articles, I want to talk about Jane Meyer's current piece in The New Yorker about what may have really gone on with regards to these Russian trolls and their effect on the 2016 election. And I want to talk about Steely Dan, and I want to do the good and the bad and the ugly, and uh, I need more time. All right, quickly, Mr. Miller, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly.
according to the Week magazine, it was a good week a couple weeks back for vague rebranding with news that Dunkin' Donuts is going to drop the word Donuts from its name. (laughs) This comes just days after Weight Watchers announced that it's changing its name to WW, in which case neither of the W's stands for anything in particular. Was, on the other hand, a bad week a few weeks back for Heather's, with new research indicating that the girl's name, Heather, has fallen out of fashion faster than any name in history. In 2017, only 219 babies were named Heather. In 1975, the total was 24,000. And thirdly, it was an ugly week, according to The Week magazine, for, uh, well, I guess you'd say children standing around their, on their own two feet with the news that parents can now spend $9 a month on a smartphone app. This provides frequent updates on their children's well-being. The app, named Mom, I Am Okay, sends push notifications to the child's phone asking if he or she is safe. If the child does not respond yes, the app transmits location data to the parents and the police. Yes, the police don't have enough to do. No, a text message was sent out. Ma, no, a text message to a kid went out asking, "Are you safe?" And yes, did not come back. Man, send out the squad car. App developer Patrick Mullen was quoted as saying, "I want to know where my daughters are at if something ever happens to them." Oh my God, can you imagine if something happens to them? My God, let's query them twenty times a day. Are you safe? All right, in the few minutes we have left, let's do a roundup of goofy news from around the globe, starting with Stockholm. Notes the week, China is accusing Sweden of instigating racial hatred and confrontation after a satirical Swedish TV show offered an unoffensive list of do's and don'ts for Chinese tourists. Among the tips, don't eat Swedish pets and don't defecate on the street. The sketch was inspired by an incident earlier in September when a Chinese family arrived at a Stockholm hostel 14 hours before check-in and refused to leave the lobby. They were forcibly removed, weeping by police, and many Swedes on social media mocked the family as drama queens. The Chinese embassy in Sweden has now issued a formal travel advisory to its citizens, warning of frequent robberies and harassment of Chinese tourists. But as far as we know, nobody's defecating on the streets of Stockholm. No, you have to go to San Francisco for that. We built this city. We built this Dateline, Skopje, Macedonia. Evidently, Macedonian Prime Minister Zoran Zaev says he's going to try to switch his nation's name to North Macedonia to placate Greece, despite the failure of a referendum on the name change which took place last week. Greece has been blocking Macedonia from joining the EU and NATO, saying that its northern neighbor must change its name, which Athens argues implies a territorial claim to the Greek province called Macedonia. Zaev wants to defuse that decades-old dispute by adding north to his country's name, and more than 90% of those who cast ballots in the referendum backed this suggested change to get this over with. But thanks to an opposition boycott and an alleged Russian disinformation campaign aimed at suppressing the vote, only 37% of voters cast ballots and 50% was needed to render the result valid. 
anyway, we do feel for the Macedonians and this whole idiotic issue. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the Greeks should try, like, instead of protesting the name of the country to the north of them, maybe, like, paying their taxes so they had a government that would actually function. Just a suggestion. And Dateline Bolivia. Apparently Bolivia has failed in its fight to get back the sea access it lost to Chile in a 19th century war. The United Nations International Court of Justice ruled last week that Chile has no legal obligation to negotiate with Bolivia over the return of the territory. The 12-3 ruling was a blow to President Evo Morales, who had traveled to The Hague to hear the court's judgment. Sadly, back in La Paz, a crowd had gathered in the main square to watch the ruling on a big screen in a festival-like atmosphere only to disperse in disappointment. Bolivia had 250 miles of coastline when it gained independence from Spain, but it lost it in the 1879-1884 War of the Pacific. You know, with that much coastline, you'd think Chile could throw Bolivia a bone. I don't know. And Mr. Miller is informing them we, we definitely do not have time to do Steely Dan or Jane Mayer. So... Let's end with this. We imagine that over in the People's Republic of China, there are probably a lot of people engaging in hand-wringing and just watching helplessly. Because, believe it or not, Chinese state-run TV is airing a five-episode game show all about President Xi Jinping. This is an attempt to present his philosophy in an entertaining way and expanding his growing personality cult. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, evidently in the program Studying Xi in the New Era, three carefully prepared contestants compete to answer questions about Xi's speeches, his favorite books, and his early years in a rural village. In one segment, a contestant said Xi's ideology, quote, brims with vigor, unquote. Another calls his leadership, quote, infinitely powerful, unquote. And, believe it or not, to appeal to its youngest viewers, the show set is a virtual spaceship (laughs) that features both talking robots and a cartoon version of Karl Marx. All right, all the stuff we didn't get to today, we'll try to get to on next week's program. And although we didn't get to talk about Steely Dan, Mr. Merlin, see if you can't go out with kid Charlemagne, will you? And as you listen to the words as we close this program, keep in mind, this is about the man who produced the world's best LSD and uh, had a lot to do with what we think of as the 60s, at least the counterculture part of it, Owsley Stanley. We'll talk about it next week. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, John Cameron Swayze. Well, not really, but we'll see you next week. Why the